Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hello, it's Will here. Before we get stuck into this week's show, I just wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who has been leaving us their ratings and reviews. It's a wonderful way to help us grow Australiana, and it's super quick and easy. If you are yet to do so, please leave us one now so we can remain in the good graces of the mystical, algorithmic podcast gods that control our destiny. Now, cue the jingle. Day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia. I'm Will Kingston. I stared at my screen for at least 30 minutes yesterday, grasping for an introduction to this interview. In the end, nothing I wrote came close to matching the clarity, the rationality, and the incisiveness of the opening remarks to Helen Joyce's book, Trans, When Ideology Meets Reality. Helen has kindly allowed me to share them. This book is about an idea one that seems simple but has far-reaching consequences. The idea is that people should count as men or women according to how they feel and what they declare instead of their biology. It's called gender self-identification and it is the central tenet of a fast-developing belief system which sees everyone as possessing a gender identity that may or may not match the body in which it is housed. When there is a mismatch, the person is transgender, trans for short, And it is the identity, not the body, that should determine how everyone else sees them and treats them. The origins of this belief system date back almost a century to when doctors first sought to give physical form to the yearnings of a handful of people who longed to change sex. For decades, such transsexuals were few and far between, the concern of a handful of maverick clinicians who would provide hormones and surgeries to reshape their patients' bodies to match their desires as closely as possible. Bureaucrats and governments treated them as exceptions to be accommodated in society with varying degrees of competence and compassion. Since the turn of the century, the exception has become the rule. National laws, company policies, school curricula, medical protocols, academic research, and media style guides are being rewritten to privilege self-declared gender identity over biological sex. Facilities that used to be sex-separated, from toilets and changing rooms to homeless shelters and prisons, are switching to gender self-identification. Meanwhile, more and more people are coming out as trans, usually without undergoing any sort of medical treatment. This book explains why this has happened and how it has happened so fast. Helen Joyce, welcome to Australiana. Oh, thank you for having me on. For everyone who is is listening, Helen and I have been fighting tech issues for the last 20 minutes and she's been in a mad rush around her house to find 
an adequate makeshift studio. So Helen, thank you very much for, for, for that. I've displaced my husband from his office. <laughs> uh, he knows his role. Very good. So Helen, I want to start with you. You have had an unusual journey to the coalface of the culture wars, as it were. You studied and attained a, uh, a doctorate in mathematics. You worked in academia. You then worked for The Economist for several years, including stints in some of, I would argue, the most prestigious journalism roles you can possibly get anywhere in the world, international editor for The Economist, finance editor for The Economist. I imagine they're not particularly easy jobs to give up. Why did you give them up to write trans and then to focus on advocacy on this issue? I mean, it wasn't a, a sudden decision and it wasn't a single decision. What happened was when I was international editor at The Economist in 2017, I did stumble across this issue, actually, because the editor-in-chief mentioned it to me. So the international section is a sort of a short section of The Economist that runs a long read every week on a different issue. And it was a great job, you know, finding people to write about all sorts, editing things, writing myself on occasion. And she said to me one one week at lunch, um, she said that she kept hearing from children that such and such was coming home and saying they were trans. And this wasn't something I'd come across. I had I had heard, you know, in a very, very minor way that there were people who were transsexual and I hadn't given that any thought. I sort of thought, you know, oh, doctors know what they're doing. I, I know there's an operation that's called something like a sex change. I didn't know really what was involved in it. And, you know, I had never even got to the point of asking myself, you know, can people change sex? Like the, the answer is obviously no, but I hadn't even got to that point. So I looked into it then and ended up writing an article myself because I really struggled to find an author. And I was astonished by the um, inability of oh, my own inability to do journalism in the same way that I've just been doing journalism for at that point more than a decade at The Economist. You know, interviewees acted in a very different way than they ever had on any other subject. They wanted to know who else I was talking to. And unless I was really parroting their line, which is trans women are women, trans men are men, it's a matter of self-identification, it's nothing to do with a medical issue, unless you're willing to just parrot that wholesale, they wouldn't talk to you. So I ended up writing the piece and really being convinced that there was something very strange here. And then over the following year, I started following this on social media and seeing what else I could find out. And I became quite disturbed by what I found out. Because as I say in the introduction to the book, this is actually a wholesale uh, societal change, societal and political change. And it's not the minor issue I had thought it was originally. The first question people always ask you is, aren't there very few trans people? Isn't this a tiny problem? But actually the the, the claim that's being made is a claim about everybody. And we all have a sex. So all of us are either men or women, boys or girls or for children. And the claim that was being made is that the reason that a woman is a woman is because she thinks she's a woman. And the reason a man is a man is because he thinks he's a man. And this is circular. Like, what is it they think they're thinking? It's a non-definition. So I wrote another article in 2018. And um, in fact, it ended up being published in Quillette. And by then I was genuinely concerned because, you know, there's not much that we make a fuss about people being men and women anymore. Like, you know, we don't say that women can't vote or that women can't enter the professions. We only really talk about people's sex when people's sex matters. So we only talk about people's sex when we're having sex-separated spaces, for example, or when we're having sports that are for women only to acknowledge the fact that men are very much stronger. That's what testosterone does to you during, during puberty. So saying that you are whatever sex you say you are, blows a hole through the idea of having sex-separated spaces at all. And also it's bloody sexist. Because, I mean, people, are, I get very condescending emails sometimes, exclusively from men, I have to say, 
Uh, I get many horrible emails from women too, but I get exclusively the condescending ones are from men, the ones that say male and female are sexes and man and woman are gender roles. To which you want to say, well, was I being a man when I got a PhD in mathematics then? Because that's hardly the, the gender role of a woman. You know, was my husband being a woman when he stayed home with the kids when we moved to Brazil when I was the Brazil correspondent for The Economist and he couldn't get a visa to work? I mean, either you think that men and women are sexes and nothing can cast you out of your sex. Like I can behave in as unwomanly a way as I like and I remain a woman. Or you think it's possible to be so unwomanly that you don't count as a woman and so unmanly you don't count as a man. So that was a sort of long way of saying that I became very worried about it and I became convinced that someone should write a book about it, but I didn't think it should be me. I was the finance editor of The Economist by that point. Very busy, great job, working all the time on something completely different. And then I met kids who had been put, well, young, they were young people by that point, but while they were still children, they had been put on the path, the transgender treatment pathway, and it had led them to very grave medical harms, up to and including sterilization. And that was the day I decided that, you know, I should write about this properly. I should do what I could because I had discovered what seemed to me to be a big story, a very big scandal, in fact. But I was still at The Economist. So The Economist had been reasonably supportive on all of this. Like, you know, I wasn't writing about it there anymore. I was doing other jobs, but they didn't treat me like other journalists have been treated. They let me do my own thing on that as long as I was doing my job. And then I took some time off. I took a total of, I think, five months of unpaid leave to write the book, to write the proposal and then the book. And then the book came out and I was continuing to work at The Economist by then as the Britain editor. So as you say, these are great jobs. And if anyone had said to me 15 years ago, I started at The Economist in 2005, that I would be international and then finance and then Britain editor, I wouldn't have believed them and I would have thought my dreams had all come true. But I had thought that maybe the book would lay it all to rest. And it was, you know, not, not for everybody. I don't mean that. I mean, for me. You know, it was driving me completely mad, this circular definition and this very illogical thinking pattern. And I wanted to write it all down to my satisfaction and then move on. But I couldn't move on. Because the thing is, they are still sterilising children. They are still destroying women's sports. They are still putting rapists in women's jails. So I had to make the very tough decision. And the decision I made with the editor's blessing was to leave. So, yeah, it wasn't easy. I want to zoom in on that first meeting that you had with detransitioners uh, without wanting to lead the witness. I've heard you tell a story, uh, I think, with Constant Kisson and, and Francis Foster about one particular detransitioner that you met on that day, which really compelled you to speak up about this. Would you mind telling me that story? Sure. Yeah. I found her testimony deeply upsetting. Um, I've found many testimonies since deeply upsetting, but she summed it all up really for me. To explain, I think that this is a problem for everybody because I think it's a policy problem and a democracy problem and free speech and liberalism and institutional problem when you tell lies and insist that they're the truth. But the specific harms are done most to three groups, which is women, gay people and children. And the reason is those are the people it matters most to that we define sex properly and clearly. Like obviously everybody who has a sexual orientation, it matters to say what sex is. But those of us who are straight, we're the, we're the majority, so it mostly doesn't rub up against us. And for men, it's not common for women to be able to force themselves on men, but it's very common for men to force themselves on women. And in particular, men who say they're women are making a statement that if they're heterosexual, they're actually lesbian. So a heterosexual man who identifies as a woman is a lesbian. So you're seeing a lot of men forcing themselves into lesbian spaces, lesbian meetups, dating apps, uh, organizations, and so on. 
So it's a real problem for lesbians. And then for children, because children's identities are still in formation and because children believe what grown-ups tell them. So it's quite easy to auto-suggest to children that they, if there's something wrong with them or, or they're unhappy, it's a problem of their sexed body. So this girl really was all of those things. Now, by the time I met her, she was 23, but she'd had a very, very difficult teenage years. Uh, she's lesbian. She'd always been hyper, hyper unfeminine. Actually, a very dainty little character. Like when I say she's butch, I don't mean she's big and strong. She's, she's, she's kind of sweet, but she, she'd be a baby butch, they'd say. And she had a very severe eating disorder. And, you know, she was hospitalized to save her life several times. And she was bullied for being lesbian. She said that she didn't like to call herself a lesbian because that's a porn category. You know, men, men looking at two women together in porn sites and they call it lesbian porn. So, she was deeply unhappy and really primed by the things that had happened to her to to blame her sex and her sexuality. And then she stumbled upon the idea of being trans, of being a trans man. And within a week of having ever heard of this idea, she believed that she was a boy and that that was why she had an eating disorder, because she was trying to starve away her curves. So she went to a therapist who said that that was exactly right, and that if she went on testosterone, you know, had her breasts removed and all the rest, that she, she would no longer feel distress and it would cure her eating disorder. And she told her parents, and I mean, her parents knew, didn't know anything about this, but they'd seen their daughter nearly die. So they were like, okay, great, if this saves your life. But if you fast forward some years to when I met her, she had taken testosterone, her voice had broken, she now had facial hair, she had no breasts, she had her ovaries and uterus removed at age 21. She was preparing for a phalloplasty, which is this gruesome operation where they take part of your forearm or your thigh and turn it into a sort of tube that they attach to your groin. Very high um, complication rates. Obviously not anything like a functional penis, but anyway, that's what they do. And she had, she was still suffering the after effects of the hysterectomy. So she went online to try to find like how long you meant to feel bad after a hysterectomy because they hadn't given her any idea. They just said you'll feel better. Now it's actually, it can be a year before you feel okay after a hysterectomy. It's a major operation. My mum wasn't all right for a year after hers. And she found these lovely support groups of women who had had hysterectomies because they had cancer or because they had endometriosis. And they were great to her. And then one night, she said, this day I met her and these other detransitioners, she said, one night, this thought popped into her head, which is, how can an operation that can only be done to a woman turn me into a man? And it was as if she had hit a wall and bounced all the way back. And within a week, she thought everything she had done was nonsense. Everything they had said to her was nonsense. She still had all the problems that she'd had when she went into it. She still has an eating disorder. She's still depressed. Um, you know, her, her body dysphoria, the hatred of the female parts had just moved. Like after she got her breasts off, it moved to her hips. But now she was sterile. And who knows what other health harms by messing around, by losing her ovaries. I mean, your ovaries and uterus are serious, seriously important organs for a woman. You don't remove them for no reason. And I just sat there and I thought they're sterilizing gay kids because most of the kids they see in the gender clinics around the world, at least then, I mean, you know, the social contagion has gone so far now that it's affecting all sorts of kids. But at that point in 2019, most of the kids they were seeing in the gender clinics were gay or going to grow up gay. This makes me reflect on a, a comment that I've heard from a previous guest on this podcast. She made the comment that some parents want a trans daughter more than a gay son. And it leads me to ask the question, how much of this is an unfortunate byproduct on vulnerable gay children, teenagers? And how much of this is a deliberate and conscious attack on 
gay people in the gay community? I don't think much of it is a deliberate attack in the sense of somebody sitting there and saying, I bloody hate gay people. But I think there's a lot more homophobia out there than people think there is. And I think homophobia is a less simple thing than people think it is. By now, I have a lot of gay friends, both male and straight, and I have a gay son as well as a straight son. And, you know, it's not an easy path to adulthood being a gay teenager. You know you're different when you finally realise why you're different. You know, the fact is that you're going to be a minority. It's going to be hard to meet people. Whichever sex you are, your, your same-sex friendship groups are complicated now in a way that they're not for straight kids because there's always the possibility of sexual attraction. Like either you feel it and they don't return it or they're worried that you'll feel it and, you know, they don't feel comfortable with you around the way they would with a straight friend of the same sex. And also, you know, there's a strong connection between being quite gender non-conforming and being gay. And the gender non-conformity can be very early. And particularly for boys, there's a really strong cultural dislike of very gender non-conforming boys. So boys can grow up with an awful lot of shame about being gay. And then for girls, I mean, you know, being a tomboy has always been more culturally acceptable than being a quote-unquote sissy. But this thing about lesbians and porn, like, this is huge. Like, it is, you know, young women, will, lots of young women say that they don't like to use the word lesbian. They say they're queer because they don't want to say lesbian. Lesbian's almost embarrassing to say. I mean, either because they think it makes you sound like, you know, you're in your 60s and you don't wear a bra and you, you want to go and live in a commune somewhere. I mean, I know lesbians like that and good on them. But anyway, that's not all of lesbianism, is it? Or because it's this porn category thing, like men say, oh, can I watch? Um, or, you know, all you need is a good fuck. So it's not that people are like, I don't want any gay people. It's that there's a lot of internalized homophobia and there are parents who can't understand why their little boy is the way he is, don't like it at all, um, you know, think that they should take away his dolls and stop him from you know, wanting to dress up in mum's jewellery and, you know, take him off to rugby and, you know, toughen him up. And those parents, I mean, it's the worst thing you can do. That's the way that you solidify the desire for the things that the child actually wants. But that child is now ashamed. He still wants those things, but now he's ashamed. And then if that, if that parent comes across the explanation that really this little boy is actually a girl, that can seem to some of them like, oh, that makes such sense, you know? And then you see, especially with the little boys, the very little boys, they make such cute little girls, like when they grow their hair, and now they're allowed to be all flancy, like they always wanted to be. They're just the girliest, girliest, girliest girls. And no one's thinking, well, what happens when puberty comes along? Mm. Like you've got this kid who maybe for three, four, five years has thought, like has completely forgotten that he's a boy, actually. This is particularly um, disconcerting when you see like so many Hollywood celebrities that seem to have this desire or, or inclination to dress up 10 year old boys as, as girls um, and yeah yeah it, and you just think like what you know what's what's your what's your future plan for this like childhood and parenting and um educational professionals like they're meant to be thinking about op- keeping things open rather than closing things down for children but you know parenting is always is always a, a balance between boundaries and freedom and it's, you know, obviously every parent gets it wrong sometimes and there's different ways to do it well. But roughly speaking, you're trying to give your children structure, safety, tell them what's right and wrong, you know, set rules about things like bedtime, good behaviour, that sort of stuff. But also trying to open up as many doors for them as possible so that they can be the most authentic person that's possible for them to be and that they can find things they're passionate about. But you don't close things down, especially not close things down like, they're st- you know, making them sterile because the thing is these little kids that they've presented to the world as members of the opposite sex like the only way out of this is puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones and if you 
do puberty blockers early enough to basically stop puberty and then go on cross-sex hormones, you won't ever become a fertile human being. You won't ever grow up to have adult fertility. So you're not just infertile. I mean, I was infertile. Both my children are by IVF. Like, and they are my husband's and my gametes, my eggs and his sperm. But that's infertility. Infertility is something that you could treat. Sterility means that you just don't even have the function. So they're creating sterile people. They're turning gay, healthy, fertile people into a sterile facsimile of the opposite sex. And when you face that full on and say it like that, you realize that what you're looking at is probably the medical scandal of the 21st century. Like this is, like to say human rights abuse, it's such a minimizing phrase, human rights abuse for what's going on here and in many other major human rights um, abuses too. You know, it, it, it's the sort of thing that we will be writing about in textbooks in 50 years time and saying, how did this ever happen? This insight is at the intersection of the two groups, this issue that I really struggle to get into the mind of, and that is parents and the doctors who enable this. So we take them in turn. I've heard you talk about parents with respect to this issue as the Japanese soldiers in the Pacific after they, the war is over and they don't know it's over. And for that reason, you've said that this is part of the reason that makes this such a difficult social issue to try and move past. Can you can you expand on that for me? So the thing is that when, when a parent has a child come to them and say, mum, I'm trans, that child has already been self-radicalizing online. It doesn't come out of nowhere. They will have picked it up in school, but they will also have got it online. And like, unless they're very tiny, there are these tiny kids who just say, I was always meant to be a girl, I was always meant to be a girl. It's about basically boys. But the vast share of children now who identify as trans are early teens, and it's mostly girls. So those girls have found this idea online, and it's their equivalent of self-harm, anorexia, you know, the social contagions that teenage girls do seem to be painfully prone to. But they'll also have learned a whole load of scripts and a whole load of rebuttals. And so they, they come pre-loaded with, you know, my parents could be transphobes if they say anything that's not just brilliant. They hate me. Anyone who doesn't affirm my gender identity is genocidal and wants all trans people dead. Like they've, they've got all this stuff and everything you say, it, 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 it rolls off them. It's as if they've been already indoctrinated into a cult and you don't know what to say. Like getting people out of cults is really hard because a, an effective cult has, has its believers, you know, feeling that the world is against them and that uh, they, you know, they, they already know the answer to anything likely that you might say, and it's not a helpful answer. So that comes along to you as a parent and you have to decide what to do. And you, you look into it. I mean, I know behind the scenes, some parents who've done this and have made both sorts of decisions. And, you know, you're open-minded at first. You've never heard of this. You didn't know about it. You probably think you're very liberal. You know, you wouldn't mind having a gay child. You you know, maybe you're a floating voter, it doesn't matter, whatever, but you know, you're not prejudiced. You you don't want to be prejudiced. You want to do the right thing by your child. And you find people like me and they say, and people like me say, you know, no child is trans. This is a sociocultural category that's been invented and not for the benefit of children. And then you find other people saying, of course, you know, trans has existed throughout history. Some people are trans, get over it, but also your child will kill themselves unless you go along with it. The weaponization of suicide is perhaps the most wicked thing that the transgender lobby does. And you're going to have to decide. There's no openness. There's no way of just taking a middle road through my boy is really a girl and no, my boy is really a boy or you know, for a girl. And once you've decided, you are now all in, especially if you've decided to go along with social transition and then medical transition, because it's not reversible. Even the social transition isn't reversible. 
And so now you're going to have to not listen to people who disagree with you, who will say anything that raises doubts in your mind, because the doubts are the most painful thing. So, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a particular parent who did talk to me before deciding to transition his daughter, and he went ahead and did it. He thinks I'm the most evil person in the world. He says the most horrific things about me. I mean, you know, he's blocked me on social media, of course, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't know what he does. He does use an alt or something and he screen grabs things and then says horrific things about me. And then mm. this isn't, he isn't the only one. And it's not because I, I don't talk about him at all. Like I, I don't interact with him at all, but I am a standing reproach. And by now, because this is a phenomenon more of middle class, well educated white people, it is like it's very overwhelmingly the sort of people who work in politics, the media, uh, multinational business, um, PR, you know, all the sort of influency type professions. So, I mean, there's loads of people who transition their children at, say, the BBC, there's some at The Guardian, there's some in pretty much any publication. And then those people, anything that you write that's in any way evidence based, or even not just 100% pro trans all the time. Is a, is a reproach to them. So it makes it very difficult to cover it properly. It's one of the reasons, one of the big reasons, I think, why this issue has been so badly covered. Mm. This speaks to it being a culture-bound syndrome as opposed to necessarily a scientific phenomena. And it goes to a wonderful little clip between you and Peter Bogosian, who's also been on Australiana. It was actually the catalyst for me wanting me to, to speak to you because Peter Bogosian is one of the great brains in the world. And as you are speaking to him on this, can see his brain being prodded and influenced and reshaped as he was initially believing to my, the way that I understand it, that this is in some respects a culture bound phenomenon, but there are also some legitimate instances of trans in inverted commas. You don't think there is any legitimate instance of trans in inverted commas. You I, think I, it's I just entirely culture bound. I mean, I don't even know what legitimate means. I yeah. think people's feelings. That's why I was struggling with it because I, yeah. I, I struggle with the wording here. I mean, People's feelings are legitimate and culture-bound syndromes cause, re you know, so to explain to people a culture-bound syndrome, but even if we go back further than that, we need to talk about what a somatizing syndrome is. Basically, there's a lot, a lot of the unhappiness and illness that human beings suffer doesn't have a sort of a, a very obvious physical cause. It's not caused by, you know, an infection or a broken bone or something like that. It, it's caused by psychic distress, really. And then it manifests on your body. And that does not mean it's false or fake. Like people can die of these things. And a lot of it is always in your, in your um, abdomen because we've just got loads of squishy stuff. You know, between your shoulders and your groin, there's just a lot of squishy stuff and it's very hard to tell what's hurting. And if you think about it at any point, probably something's hurting there. There's just so much mm. going on that if you focus on your midriff, you'll find that something is a bit uncomfortable. So people who are you know, miserable for whatever reason often feel it on their bodies. I mean, I had this when I was trying to decide what to do at The Economist. I, you know, I, I had very bad stomach pains because mm. I loved the place, I loved my job, but every day I felt I was doing the wrong thing. And yeah. so I kept getting awful stomach pains, and I promise you they, they were real stomach pains. But yeah. as soon as I stopped and left, they stopped. You know, it's not illegitimate to have somatizing experiences. And so I was going I to say, any, anyone who has had severe anxiety would be oh, able to yeah, empathize with what you're saying and the yeah, feeling yeah, in the yeah, chest. Yeah. And I mean, it can be in your breathing. Um, another friend who was going through a lot of grief at work, um, and funnily enough, both her parents and her husband are people who are in, in, in psychological professions. And she was talking to me on the phone and she was saying, my migraines, my God, the headache every day I go into work, I can barely see. And mm. she said, this is ridiculous. Like, I know that this is what happens 
Like I should, and you sort of feel like because you know this is what happens, you should be able to stop it, but you can't. Anyway, that was a lengthy preamble to saying it's not about legitimate or illegitimate. The point is that when people have these experiences of dis-ease, discomfort in their body, they're very real, but they're shaped by beliefs in your culture. So if you believe that women suffer from hysteria and that that's a wandering womb and that it comes up and it chokes them, women act like that. And the history of the two centuries in which we've had modern medicine, because that's all we've had doctors with any sort of you know, moral authority for, doctors and patients co-create and co-shape symptoms into a recognizable syndrome and that you know you can, there's fascinating medical history on this their syndromes come in and out of fashion so i think it's absolutely unarguable now that most of what trans is is a culture bound syndrome mm. that said that's mostly the teenagers there probably always have been some people basically men and boys who have very 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 strongly felt spontaneously felt the feeling that they're meant to be women and meant to be girls now, for the little boys, that's overwhelmingly about them going to, being people who are going to grow up gay. And for older men, it's more complicated. Like a man who in his 40s or 50s came out as a woman, anything up to about 10 years ago, that man was either a youngish gay man who had given up trying to butch up and decided that life would just be much easier as a woman, or he's a man who has a, a sexual fetish, about an erotic fixation on the idea of himself as a woman. And the question is, can he be happy enough just by cross-dressing for erotic purposes, or is he going to have to do it all the time to be happy? Mm. And those men are the most difficult for all of the rest of us to incorporate, because they're not, you know, the more the more they're fixated on this, and the more it is not just about the clothes and it's about the body, the more they require everyone else to play along. And it isn't really everyone else, it's women. And, you know, 50 years ago, that man might have been happy dressing as a woman and then getting a job that only women really did like secretary or a shop girl but now that we have so far fewer demarcations between what's appropriate for men and women that man wants to do things that only women can do and by now there's nothing that only women can do except things where we need to keep all men out and that's changing rooms rape crisis centers domestic violence shelters sports toilets you know so for those men Becoming a woman means using things that only women can use. Straight away means they trample on women's rights. And that's the central problem for me, is that um, these men have been legitimized by doctors. Like you, you said two things. You said the parents and you said the doctors. And I think we've talked about the kids. But if mm. you think what the doctors thought they were doing at first, because I talked to some of them, retired, um, retired doctors who were, you know, in the first wave of doing this seriously in the 1970s or so. They knew they weren't changing people's sex. Sometimes they'd even get people to sign a piece of paper saying that they understood they weren't having their sex changed. What they thought they were doing was taking very, very, very strange people with a really hard to treat, basically impossible to treat delusion and making them a bit happier. And because there were so few of them, and basically because they're sexist, they didn't think what this meant for women. What the implicit and sometimes explicit promise they were making was, if you take testosterone, if you have your genitals operated on so you no longer have a penis or testicles, and you have this cavity that will make for you that looks a bit like a vagina, and if you grow your hair long and you wear women's clothes, women will accept you as a woman. They'll let you into places that only women are allowed. But they never asked women. And then step by step, you know, now certainly we don't require the surgery anymore. Very few trans-identified people actually have surgery on their genitals. Um, we now have this idea that a man is a woman just by saying so. So now we have just totally physiologically normal men who are just obviously men 
feeling that they have the right to come into women's spaces. And for them, it's an erotic fixation for some of them. These are not unintelligent people who are performing these operations. These are not unintelligent people who are advocating this quite the opposite. Uh, you would have seen, no doubt, a recent clip that's come out of Neil deGrasse Tyson with uh, on trigonometry, obviously a incredibly intelligent person, but it was shocking. We'll, we'll include the clip in the show notes. It is like bonkers to see someone who is obviously intelligent tying themselves in knots and getting incredibly angry trying to defend a ludicrous position. And you can see Constantine and Francis both just kind of going, this is surreal and bizarre. How has this captured not just so many institutions, but so many institutions that are meant to have so-called intelligent, well-educated, informed people, particularly in the sciences? I think the anger is very interesting and that's near to It was fascinating. I mean, you see, I'm not angry and I have every reason to be angry. I mean, it's my rights that are being destroyed, not his. You know, I'm the one who has people following me down the street shouting, fuck Helen Joyce at me. Um, When I was at The Economist, they would report me to my employer and try and get me to lose my job. And, you know, I'm the one who's under fire here. And yet I'm able to maintain a calm voice. And part of the reason for that is that I think I have a logical argument to make and I don't want to detract from that. Anger is what people do when they know very well. It's bluster. Mm. Now, I don't want to speculate about a person I don't know. So if I can just make a general point, which is that sometimes when people come out very strongly on this issue, you know, they've got skin in the game. There's a family member or somebody else that they feel a personal loyalty to who basically requires them to take a particular side. And people, when people are in bad faith, when they know they're making bad faith arguments on the wrong side, you know, they, they shout, they storm out, they, you know, tell you you're a bigot, they, you know, they pull all, they, 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 they do the, you know, you're as bad as Hitler sort of arguments. But I, as I say, I don't know his particular situation. He also said something that you hear a lot about, like, he didn't quite say it like this, but he was kind of saying man and woman are social roles. Like he was saying, he really seems to say that women would get breast implants to be more women. Now, I don't know if he's got um, a cognitive problem, actually. And I'm not trying to be funny here because most people can tell the sex of another person in instantaneously and they're not able to stop themselves from telling the sex of the other person but some people are face blind and more of them are men than women like men are also very good at telling the sex of people but it's less important to men than it is to women so they're not as good as women and sex recognition is actually male recognition Mm. if you're wrong about whether a woman is a woman or a man it's not dangerous whether you're a woman or a man if you're wrong and you think that a man is a woman that's dangerous for both sexes for a man, because a man is somebody who might fight you, and for a woman, because a man is somebody who might hit you or rape you. So it's it's possible, I mean, and this is just speculation. But there are I have looked at some men, not so much Neil deGrasse Tyson, and I thought, like, are you one of the tiny minority of people who can't tell people's sex? Like, are you one of these blokes who sees long hair and tits and thinks female? And I mean, some men are like that, as far as I can tell, because there are there are people who there are trans women, as in men who identify as women, who wouldn't pass to me you know, on a dark night at the bottom of the coal hole for a second. And then there's other people saying, yeah, you know, it looks great. So so I do wonder about that, actually. Because, I mean, I don't think the big tits make somebody look more like a woman. I mean, no, it just, it's, it's just ridiculous to me. And if he's not one of those people, then he's saying something enormously sexist. He's saying that performing femininity is what makes you a woman. 
And I mean, yes, women perform femininity. I'm a straight woman. I mean, I'm in my 50s now, but when I was in my teens and 20s and even my 30s, you know, I performed femininity because I'm straight and I want men to find me attractive. Women do, of course, do that. I don't think it made me look more or less like a woman. It made me look maybe more attractive, which is a different thing. I sometimes look at men and I think their definition of a woman is, would I fuck up? And that's basically what he was saying. The bigger the tits, the more womanly she is. God's sake, Neil, listen to yourself. I think this is something, I think this is what really angered a lot of people with that Dylan Mulvaney controversy uh, and, and his ongoing kind of social media, his uh, whatever, social media antics. And that is not peep that people are transphobic, which is what some people said in response to people who got upset about Bud Light or Nike, but that it is the notion of this performative, almost erotic version of femininity uh, which which is insulting, and I think kind of when you see the kind of the the dances and the clips and all that sort of thing, I think is that notion of performing as a woman, which again I can't empathise with, but I imagine for women must be incredibly insulting. I mean, things if you want to do it, you want to do it. Like you know, women, women like dressing up to go out sometimes and so on. It's just not what makes you a woman. You know, <laughs> I, I don't know why. Well, I do know, and, and the last thing I'll say about this is. I was I was going to say a totally untrue thing, which is I don't know why people can't distinguish between just the bedrock biological reality of male and female, and then all the other things like you know your feelings, your performance, your appearance on top of that. And the reason is, and this is what this comes back to your initial question about intelligent people: our brains didn't evolve to be right; they evolved to mm-hmm. give us an evolutionary advantage. I mean, that's just tautological. That's what evolution does. And if you think what gives people an evolutionary advantage, a lot of the time it's going along with their tribe. So whatever um, intellectual commitments Neil deGrasse Tyson and many other people have, um, it's, it's to a group who have already prior commitments to what they call trans rights. And then what clever people do when they need to find arguments for something in order to stay part of their tribe, clever people are better at this than stupid people. They confabulate, they, they make reasons for themselves that sound plausible enough that they're able to believe them if they don't look carefully. And they're very, 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 very good at fooling themselves about what's going on because they've got brain power. So mm. and that's what I was watching with that Neil deGrasse Tyson. I was looking at a man who was incredibly effectively fooling himself because he's clever enough to be able to do it well. But of course, to the rest of it, it's just transparent. Like if you don't have the same intellectual commitment or ideological commitment to the idea that trans women are women, you can see what he's doing. It's obvious. But he can't see it himself. And that's the purpose of it. He can't see the lie, which allows him to say the lie in a way he thinks is convincing, which allows him not to be cast out of his tribe. The obvious follow-up question to that, and we're entering the Peter Bogosian realm of epistemology here, is for people who do have those beliefs, is there any way of influencing them or persuading them to see your argument or to see rationality? I mean, a prior question to that is, do you even want to try to persuade them? I mean, most people still are not ideologically committed to this point, this um, point of view. If you ask questions in language that people understand, most people do not think that trans women are women. The language is, of course, very deceptive, so you have to be very careful how you ask it. This is all about language. This is what also stuns me about this whole debate, is this is, this is all about the control of words. Because it's an entirely linguistic phenomenon. Like, the only way that you are trans is that you say you're trans, that's it. There's nothing else you're allowed to do. It isn't even about performing femininity anymore. Like, as soon as you say, well, you know, this bloke with a beard, you know, says he's a woman, like, he's not even performing femininity. And then you get told, oh, you're policing the gender. Like, you wouldn't blame a woman if she had 
long, you know, some women do grow beards, like, you know, especially in menopause, you know, you get to sprout extra hairs every day. Like if I didn't cut my chin hairs, am I not being a woman? You know, it's, it's very bad faith what they're saying. So first they say, oh, it's a gender role. And then they say that people perform their genders in different ways. So they've, it's like a ball and cup game, you know, the ball isn't anywhere. Do you want, to, do you want to persuade people who have become very ideologically committed to this position? If your aim is um, public policy, I think that's a fairly much a waste of time because most people don't think that. I don't care what people believe. People believe all sorts of idiotic things that I don't believe. You know, I don't care if there are people who believe in astrology or homeopathy. I'm not religious myself. I don't care what religions other people behave, uh, believe in. As long as we're able to keep a secular world order in which those beliefs are private beliefs and are not allowed to influence, you know, I, I don't have to pay even lip service to them and they don't influence the world that I live in. I don't want to go and live in a state like Saudi Arabia where some people's beliefs are imposed on everybody else. And that's what's happening now, of course, with the trans belief system. But if you personally do want to change somebody's mind, the two reasons I can think of that you might want to do that are one, your political party has got captured or, you know, the head teacher at your child's school has got captured on this issue. And the other one is that it's someone close to you, maybe your own child. You have a really difficult job and it would do you well to go and look at the literature on getting people out of cults because that's what you're going to have to do. Absolutely does not work to just present them with chapter and verse evidence. I mean, as I already said, they um, probably have been preloaded with rebuttals to everything that you can possibly think of saying. And in fact, you're just making them resist you more because you're going through the script that they've learned is the likely one. So a parent who says something like, um, Oh, but darling, you were never even very um, boyish when you were little. Or, oh, but sweetheart, I mean, you know that we don't mind if you're a lesbian or something. They're saying things that that girl has already read parents are likely to say, and that they are the things that transphobes say. So you can't do that. There's a great book that's about to come out. I think I don't think it's quite come out yet, or maybe it has. Um, it's by Stella O'Malley, Sasha Ayad, and Lisa Marciano. So three great therapists in, in different places, two in America and one in Ireland. And it's um, um, when kids say they're trans. And mm. it's got great advice for parents who are put in this situation. And you know, to sum it up, open-minded, curious, supportive of everything else in the child's life, try to make gender less of an issue. Anything else the child likes doing, do that. And then advice for non-parents, like, and I think Peter Bogosian's excellent on this, and he's even written a book, co-authored a book on how, on called Impossible Conversations, on how to talk about things that rile people up to this extent. And it's things like, um, you know, ask questions rather than make statements. And if you can say to a child something like, and, you know, that's really interesting. What makes you think that? Or, huh, that sounds really tough to feel like that. And just let them speak. Mm. Or if you think there's something that you want to show them, ask is there something they'd like to show you. Like listen more than you speak and and don't hector. And then more generally, if it's like a sibling or a friend that you're falling out of them, this like, why are you falling out with them? Don't talk about it. If your sibling or friend isn't in a position of power on this subject, like they aren't running a school or a hospital or you know, they aren't an elected politician, leave them have their beliefs, for God's sake. Don't be bothering them about it. Mm. And then they might come back to you, you know? I've heard now, by now I'm hearing quite a lot of people saying things like, you know, I fell out with this friend three years ago over this and I got an email from her out of the blue saying, you were right, I was seeing this thing about sport. If you do have to try to persuade somebody, uh, sport is good, um, but just say one or two sentences. Just say something like, um, God, you know, I saw this thing about like girls having to compete against people who are born male. 
and it just seemed very unfair to me and then shut up. Oh, look, I, I've got a pretty strong libertarian streak. I'm all for that line of thinking that says leave people to have silly beliefs if that's what they so choose. There are two caveats here. The, the one caveat is still a bit annoying. Like I've, I, I chuckled when I heard you say this in a previous interview where you said, look, I'm a mathematician, right? Now, for me, one plus one has to equal two and just putting up with this bullshit really annoys me. I, I accept that as, as a caveat, but still, that is not in and of itself a good enough reason to, to stop people thinking a certain way, and I get that. What does become more problematic is when these views then infringe on your freedoms. And yeah. this brings us to, to your recent conversation with Jordan Peterson, which has now been censored by YouTube on the grounds of hate speech. I guess the first question is, do you know why that was censored? And then the second is, more broadly, what are your reflections on that? I mean, we don't know for sure. The email that was sent to Jordan, because it's his channel, so he got it, but he forwarded it, just said, you know, uh, grounds of hate towards a protected group or something like that. We think it, because I've had two conversations with Jordan, and it's the first one, we think it's because we called Elliot Page, Ellen Page, and she, her. So we referred to a woman as a woman. So mm. the second conversation that I did with him, which I think was great, and really enjoyed it, uh, he didn't put a little bit on YouTube, he just put half an hour of it on YouTube. And the rest is available on other platforms, including Twitter and also on podcast platforms. Yeah. So, I mean, we have to fight to be able to use our language in more ways than I realized when I started doing this. Like, I would always have said free speech was really important to me. So when you say free speech absolutist, people think that you mean you want to be able to say, you know, bring back slavery or, you know, cite, you know, Nazi talking points or something. I mean, I think those of us who call ourselves free speech absolutists, we rule out incitement to violence, attempting to overthrow the democratic order, um, and then the boring one of, um, you know, sharing copyrighted material, you know? So within those very, very broad constraints, like about where the American First Amendment is, that's where I am. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's not just because I don't like being censored. I mean, I really don't like being censored. And it's not just because what I'm being censored about is a bloody medical scandal and human rights abuse, although that's a pretty good reason to not be censored. It's because I can't think when I can't speak. Like, if I have to call men women and women men and, you know, use she, her for obvious males and so on, I just can't keep my head straight. So it's stopping me from actually thinking and it's making me stupid if I have to do that. And that, you know, I mean, the Neil deGrasse Tyson's a good example because people say such stupid things on this subject, more stupid than they say on anything else. Like you see all these people who on Twitter say things like, um, if you say something about toilets, they'll say, um, ah, but your toilet at home is gender neutral. And you're like, God almighty, I don't have strangers walking into the toilet at home. Like, how are you saying something that stupid? The answer is because they're not talking about it. We're stupid when we can't talk. It's so funny that you say that. You know, I mentioned in the intro that I really struggled writing some opening remarks to this interview, and I'm usually relatively good at that, and I quite enjoy it. And I was trying to think to myself, why is this so bloody hard? Like this, it is like this issue makes you stupid. I find it absolutely bizarre. Uniquely, uniquely so. There is literally nothing else that is so hard to talk about, and therefore nothing else that we are so stupid on. I mean, the, but the, the last reason I would give for the enormous importance of using clear sex-based language here is that you can't set, you can't write laws or set policies or have rules or regulations in which the language is barred from saying the thing that you need to distinguish. So, I mean, I'm thinking a lot about schools at the moment and about this trans schools guidance that's meant to be coming out here in the UK and it's been delayed several times. 
And the government seems, from what's being leaked, to have got itself to a place where it understands what the justification is for having single-sex toilets, changing rooms, dormitories and sports in schools. But they're really hung up on this question of whether a child who's trans-identified could insist that the school calls them by the opposite-sex pronouns. This is another very, very, very clever bit of misdirection by the trans lobby. Like this thing of my pronouns, my preferred pronouns, my pronouns are she, her. Pronouns are things that other people use of you. And they use them just to describe what they see, but they also use them when they're explaining whether or not you can go into sex-separated spaces. So imagine you have a school that has a child, let's call this child Joseph. And Joseph now starts to identify as Josephine. You know, Joseph comes in and he says, I'm Josephine, she, her. And where the government seems to have got itself is that the school has to say, oh, oh, hello, Josephine, she, her. We will tell all the teachers that you are Josephine, she, her. We will tell the other students that you're Josephine, she, her. We can't make anybody call you that because they also have free speech rights, unless you, for example, say you'll kill yourself otherwise, in which case we may decide that we're going to have to know. That's ridiculous in itself because that's encouraging children to go for emotional blackmail. But by the way, Josephine, she, her, you can't use the women's to- the girls' toilets or the girls' changing rooms and you can't play the girls' sports. And mm. Josephine says, why? I'm a girl. And you're stuck saying, but Josephine, you're the special sort of girl who can't do any of those things. Well, what's that special sort of girl? Oh, a trans girl. Are you transphobic? So unless I can call Josephine a boy, I can't say why Josephine can't go into the girls' spaces. So it's really, really important that we hang on to the language that we need in order to say only women can go into women's spaces. Only men can go into men's spaces. No man can play in women's sports. If I have to call those bloody men women, I've lost the argument. Mm, this is really interesting. This reminds me of uh, another conversation we did recently with Brendan O'Neill. His most recent book, the first chapter, is memorably titled Her Penis, which he says is is just such a, a sad, bizarre summary of the age in which we live. Yeah. But his thoughts on this I thought were quite interesting and instructive and in that he said something along the lines of, I initially went along with the whole pronouns game because I'm, you know, British and polite. But he said, the more I think about it, and this goes to what you just said, the more doing that enables a lot of the problems downstream yeah. that therefore lead to really practically harmful consequences and i think that that really resonated with me you know that and, I mean, you see that in america at this point and um, you know they call like someone like leah thomas who is a man who calls himself a woman now i mean if you're being polite and if you're well educated you might say leah thomas is a trans woman she her but in america the tendency now is to call leah thomas female maybe trans female but a trans female is a female who identifies as a male because female is not an identity it's a biological reality it's a category that it yep. doesn't just apply to humans. I mean, there are plants that are female and male, so they don't have identities at all, you know? Like they're, they're tiny animals, like little spiders who are male and female. So it's just so stupid to, to call somebody like Leah Thomas trans female or female, but that is what has happened in America. And that's what happens. You start with trans woman, she, her, then you get wife, woman, daughter, sister, mother and then and then you're at female and then you know you you've got laws that were written about male and female people which america does for example title nine which says that um women in universities and colleges in america are allowed to have single sex spaces of various sorts but must have and must have you know women's sports but this is now taken to apply to leah thomas because leah thomas is now female mm. so you've just you've just completely destroyed the entire law without changing one word of it Mm. because you change the meaning of the words 
And so I don't, I don't bully other people about their pronoun use because part of my free speech position is that everyone has to decide how to speak. And also I'm aware that almost nobody dives straight in at the not doing it, not playing along. You know, they go in bit by bit. And if you scare them too much at first, they won't go in at all. But I myself will no longer call any man a woman. We've established pretty resoundingly that this is a culture bound phenomena, but that then opens up. Uh, opens up a door to a series of more uncomfortable, equally uncomfortable questions. This also goes to a lot of the conversations I've been having recently. It says, if this is a culture-bound phenomenon, there must be problems inherent within our culture that is driving that. So I've spoken about this with John Anderson, Peter Bogosian, Constant Kisson, a lot of very intelligent people, uh, and they they point to a couple of things. They, they say, A, the decline in organised religion has created a vacuum and that vacuum has been filled with some troubling alternative ideologies and moral frameworks. I understand you're not religious, I'm not particularly religious either, but uh, I can understand the value of it in giving a type of belief, a framework for people to have their beliefs. Religion isn't going to make a comeback anytime soon. Uh, I think it's it's probably fair to say. My very difficult, broad question, Helen, is if this is a culture-bound phenomena, if there are inherent problems within the, the culture, what would you identify them as being? And then maybe let's, after that we can start thinking, well, what are some practical ways that we go about making improvements in that regard? Well, it's, a good, it's a good question, and maybe my answers are going to be a bit underwhelming for something that's so broad. I mean, I do see this as the long-run outworkings of some trends that are, are largely or at least partly good that brought us some good things among them liberalism and individualism. So I, didn't, I don't want to go back to a communitarian world in which, you know, your, your future is entirely mapped out by the family that you came from and the class that you came from, the country you came from, and so on. I think we gained a lot by allowing more people to, you know, go off to university or whatever. But, I mean, you know, we've got to the point there's nothing left. There's, there's no real gains left on the individual individualism and liberalism front and these very long-run trends they do have a tendency to just keep going like you know they've got a momentum of their own and at some point maybe maybe somewhere around you know postmodernism, post-structuralism into queer theory somewhere along that i think some philosophers would say around Rousseau, even earlier there's this idea that we're born perfect and society ruins us, it breaks us, and it does that by categorizing us, by forcing us into an imperfect self, and that the perfect self is the free self, and that we are the self-made self, and that anything that's imposed upon us can only deform us. And I mean, I just, you know, a conservative might very well be, you know, the person who, by personality, feels exactly the opposite, that the free, you know, that we're born evil, that we're, we're people who have to be, you know, redeemed by hard work by societal structures by you know organized religion and so on and i mean you can see both of those having a purpose but i mean one of them has been allowed to spread and one of them has been very much shrunk in our culture and so when you arrive at the point that you think that categories are oppressive i mean some categories are oppressive i don't want to be born into a religion that i can't leave but i mean for some people it's not oppressive it's supportive it's the thing that gives their life structure and meaning you know but when you've gone past all of those and you arrive at the body, I mean, there are even people who say, state writing down that you're male or female at birth, that that categorization is oppressive. You know, you've arrived right at bedrock, fundamental, physical reality, and you're seeing, acknowledging that um, as oppressive. 
So that's one. And then another one is some wrong turns that I understand why they were taken by feminists, but they are wrong turns. And that is the, you know, the very understandable dislike that a lot of feminists have of any argument that says there's anything innate that's different between men and women other than just the raw fact of which sex impregnates and which sex gets pregnant. And I mean, you know, this isn't hard for me to repudiate because evolution is my organizing principle and evolution doesn't leave advantage on the table. So for, for every mammal, everything about the mammal is organized to support either the female reproductive system or the male reproductive system. It's not just the reproductive systems themselves. Like everything about my body is organized for more than 200 million years of evolution, because that's, you know, they've been mammals for more than 200 million years. So for more than 200 million years, mammals' bodies have been shaped as male or female. And the idea that that wouldn't affect everything about me is silly to me. But a lot of feminists think that as soon as you say that, what you're saying is that women are the sorts of people who like, you know, picking up other people's socks. And I mean, whatever about women liking babies more than men, which I think is unarguably true, and you can totally see why, that we don't like picking up other people's socks better. We don't like being the supporting actresses better than men do. So I have a lot of sympathy with the impulse to deny any differences between men and women other than the really you know, grossly physical. And then, you know, those feminists get themselves into real trouble when they say, like, men are more violent. They talk about male violence. And then they say it's entirely culturally created. Well, every single culture that has ever been, almost all violence has been male. I mean, my feeling is that male violence is a natural phenomenon that we have to punish severely in order to stop it. And the reason we have to punish it severely is because it's so natural. If it wasn't natural, we would just train, train it out of people. You know? <laughs> like, I don't feel that being a feminist means that you have to to think these silly things, but unfortunately, a lot of feminism has gone that direction. It's something which I find really difficult to grapple with, with identity politics more broadly, and that is that so many of these identity politics trends are motivated out of the innate goodness of people, but they are then warped into ends, which which then have very, very dangerous consequences. That kind of leads me to my, to my final question, and that is, where does this end? So, So it feels like recently... There have been some really promising developments. Felt like the closure of the Tavistock Clinic in the UK was a really important moment in the UK. Where do you feel we're at, I guess, if we're looking at, at a trend line for this movement? And where do you think this ends? Different places, different countries. I mean, yes, the Tavistock was a good moment, but I'm sorry to say that um, the four replacement clinics may be as bad or worse because there's four of them and there'll be less scrutiny on each as a result. Uh, clinicians who worked at the Tavistock are applying for jobs at them. Um, the NHS spec for them is not as clear as it could be. Um, this ideology has gained such a hold that it's now as if you have, you know, Japanese knotweed or bindweed in your garden. And it takes a long time to eradicate that sort of thing. And you can't just do it by pulling things up and then walking away. You've got to pull it up and keep going back and keep pulling it out. So I think there's an awful lot of work to be done in getting rid of de-radicalizing the organizations that have put this in in their HR policies and their service specs. We've got a lot of charities now who are entirely devoted to destroying the idea of sex and law and policy as their modus operandi and as their reason for being. So they are going to keep going. You know, there's just an enormous momentum behind what you might call sex denialism. I think we will probably win here in the UK because the legal framework is pretty supportive of sex-based rights. It's a subtle, mostly well-written, well-organized legal framework that has been very badly misrepresented by the lobby groups. But, you know, we can use the legal framework to fight back against the 
the overreach. It's going to take a long time. I think it's quite possible that in America you will see a rupture between green um, between red and blue states, and this could end up being another another bit of American exceptionalism. So, I mean, America is a country that seems uniquely poor among um, developed, established democracies at solving really difficult policy questions in a way that gains the most important thing in a democracy, which is losers' consent. So losers' consent is the idea that um, you know, when, when you lose an election or you lose a policy argument, you accept that at least the process for reaching that position was legitimate. So I think most people in the UK would feel, even if they're anti-abortion, they understand that it was debated in Parliament and there's a law and it's settled. Even if they're anti-gay marriage, they understand you know, that they're in the minority and that they lost, so it's, they have to get over it. In the US, these problems don't get solved in the legislature very well. And that's why America has such problems with guns. It's why it has such problems with incredibly expensive pharmaceutical and healthcare. And, um, yeah, is there, are there any other ones I would say? Abortion is the other obvious one. And all three of those, I'm not saying they're perfect anywhere else, but there's a democratic settlement. And there isn't a democratic settlement in America on those. And at some point, you've painted yourself into a corner and you can't have a democratic settlement on it. You know, arguably, there are just too many guns now in America to do what every other developed country did, which is to mostly ban guns. Mm. And the healthcare is so expensive that the lobby groups are so powerful that you can never get yourself to a place that you can just organize healthcare in a more reasonable way. And we've seen what happened with abortion where there was no loser's consent. You know, the people who disagree with abortion felt rightly, in my opinion, that the way that it was allowed was not legitimate. You know, they never accepted that they lost. So we could end up with this on sex-based rights in America. It could be that um, you know America just doesn't solve this. And the trouble is that if you don't solve this democratically, you can't have se- you know it, it benefits one side and not the other. If you can't say what the two sexes are, then you don't have sex-based rights and sex se- separated spaces. So the other side's won. Like, and, and it could just be like that. It could be that women in America end up without the right to women's sports, uh, women's changing rooms, women's homeless shelters, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just too bad. And the longer it goes on for, the more people are invested in keeping it that way. The more men have presented themselves as women, the more they've got themselves into positions where that's absolutely vital to them. And they become then the roadblock to fixing it. Yeah. It's something which I'm very worried about in Australia. As well, gender self-ID has infiltrated our Sex Discrimination Act. There's a uh, there's going to be a landmark case, Giggle v. Tickle, farcically. Yes, well, uh, yes, I know about title. this case, yeah. And we've spoken to, to Sal on this podcast as well, and that that's going to be next year, and that will have an immense impact on on how this issue is considered from a legal perspective in Australia. You have to win it as fast as you can, because every person who takes advantage of self-ID laws to get a document that says they're the sex they're not or that they have no sex, that person probably will be grandfathered in if you try and change the law again. And with some justification, will feel hard done by if you then start to reassert sex-based rights. I mean, imagine you're one of these blokes who have got your cock chopped off because you were promised that, it would, that that would allow you to go into women's spaces and sports and so on. And then, you know, five years later, women say, sorry, no, thanks. Like, my God, have you ever been sold a bill of goods? So I can totally see why those men are enormously enraged by it. I mean, I can't stop fighting them, but the more of those men there are, the harder it is for us to to get back to where we are, where we need to be. Well, 
that is in essence why it is so important that you are having these types of conversations, Helen. It's why your book is so important in this debate and why I would wholeheartedly recommend it to, to anyone uh, that is listening. I was slightly intimidated going to this conversation because I've seen you have conversations with some of the world's best thinkers and, and run rings around them intellectually. It's quite impressive to watch. Please keep doing what you're doing because, as I said, it takes both a great deal of intellectual clarity and logical thinking, which you have in spades, but a great deal of courage as well. Um, so it makes you, I think, one of the, the really impressive figures of our time. Thank you very much for, for, for your time and for, and, for, uh, and for doing what you're doing. Oh, thank you. That was a very embarrassing closing, but anyway, fine. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.